Amazing. Well, welcome to uh, a new episode of Marketeers Clubhouse. I'm the host, Jamie Kalon. Uh, today, I've got a really interesting and fun and energetic guest. Uh, she spent her career um, working her way up through some amazing sporting, good, sporting goods brands. Uh, she's landed at Oakley Luxottica and is in a, uh, a very challenging role there. Um, the, the trajectory and the path, and we'll get into it, but it's very interesting. And you've been charged with uh, managing all sorts of very cool departments and some big brands. And I'll let you introduce yourself as far as your career. Uh, but I'd love to introduce Megan Leisinger, um, who's sitting in Manhattan, I believe, at this point. Yep. Uh, so in the great city of New York. And uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm super honored and humbled at the same time. I was loving this. Don't be too honored yet. You haven't gotten into it. <laughs> you might be asking for copious edits. Jamie, I don't like you. <laughs> awesome. Um, so you've... Uh, as I mentioned, worked your way through, give me a, the sort of Coles notes version of before you landed at the biggest company that you've sort of, you, you got into where you had a long, long career. What, what brought you in? What was your education as a young Megan, uh, that has the ability to inspire and should be, uh, a very inspirational, uh, story and character how did you get to the point where you're like i want to do marketing yeah. like what what is you where's yeah, that start I think it's, uh, it's a great question i i don't know what it is but i've always loved retail like i've absolutely always loved retail couldn't wait to get my driver's license to work at like the local store the local mall in uh Deptford, new jersey which is where i grew up i couldn't wait to work in retail i just loved it something about folding shirts something about being around consumers something about retail i just loved it so i um actually uh, studied marketing at Rutgers, uh new brunswick and i was in the marketing program and i've just always done retail i worked in the same macy's when i was in college from high school to college i went back as an assistant manager and i've just worked my way up from like a department manager at a macy's to like the job that i am now and the the thing is like someone asked me the other day what did you want to be when you grow up i said i want to do exactly what i'm doing right now i just never knew this was a job so i've been able to a oh i just never knew this was a job i never knew you could do this as a career and i absolutely love it and the best part about retail is consumers change constantly so you have to change constantly it's a it's a it's a consistent puzzle that's super interesting because you're right it is a insane puzzle so you you worked your way through and this is very similar actually to my story when i was a, a a young man i think i was in grade 10. um my I was a bit of like, I'm a knucklehead and I was a class clown and I was dyslexic. I've sort of talked about these things a little bit, uh, in the past. And my dad actually from grade six, all the way through to when I mm -hmm. finished high school, he made sure that he was a teacher at the school that yeah, I was adorable. at. So every school I went to, my dad was there and he <laughs> very, very carefully made sure that I got through that part of my life. It was, it's like the nicest and most giving thing that a, a father could do. And he did it. And in grade 10, um, I, it, I was at a big high school in downtown Calgary, um, where he was running, uh, not that time, but later he was running the English department. 
And I disappeared when lunch came back and we were getting ready to leave sort of at the end of the day because I would drive to and from school with my dad. And he's like, okay, well, we're getting ready to go. And I'm like, well, actually, I got to go to work. And he sort of looked at me and he's like, <laughs> he laughed. He's like, yeah, whatever, Jamie. And I'm like, no, I, I got a job at lunch. Oh, cool. And he's like, you, he's like, you what? And I said, yeah, I went down the street and there was a bike shop oh. down there. And I went and I, I got a job. I, I got to be there okay. right now. And he's like, he's like, uh, and he was obviously yeah. baffled. And so he's like, well, I'm going to go down there with you. So he came down with me and he met the owner and, you know, and at that time I was riding my bike like a lot, like probably in, in us sort of, uh, world, you know, 20 miles a day to and from all sorts yeah. of different areas. Didn't matter if it was mine, minus 50 or plus, you know, 50, I was just yeah. doing everything. I was riding around. And so anyways, I, I started really young and I loved it. I couldn't get yeah. enough of retail. In fact, my favorite interactions I've ever had in the work environment have all been yeah. at retail. I love it. I'm super uh, into that. Helping someone get what they want and see the happiness in their I face and in the bike world. I, I, talk about this all the time new bike day there's nothing better oh, than gosh. new bike day it's a big purchase it represents freedom it represents all these different things and you see these people get it young yeah. or old new bike day is like the greatest day ever and i could only imagine selling engagement yeah. rings and selling you know wedding dresses all these things they're so key in our world that i just uh, i i mean i absolutely adore it and that's what brought me in which sounds like what kind of it brought is. you in so you, you rolled through that and you ended up yep, at Nike. I did. Basically, let, let's shortcut, shut, you know, shortcut to an amazing, uh, an amazing spot. So you had a 16 year, almost 17 year stint at Nike. And give me a little bit like, there's going to be young women out there and young men who are like, God damn it, I want to work yeah. for Nike. Like, there, there's a, how do you go from where you were? which definitively is not as big as Nike, almost doesn't matter what company it is. How do you go from that to getting into Nike? What was your little leap? Yeah, so I was actually a store manager at an express store, um, like, you know, Structure Express, Bath and Body Works, um, those retailers uh, for limited. Mm. And I just had this moment where I'm like, I, um, I, the hours, the, the time that everything that I was putting in, I was working like 65 hour weeks. I was like the store manager working with horrible hours. And I, Jamie, haven't known me that long, but I'm usually, I mean, I'm very happy all the time. Like I'm usually a very energetic, very, like I'm not, it takes a lot to get me down. I was in the, my, my friends, my roommates actually told me later that when I would come home from work, they would run because they just, I was in the most foul mood ever. <laughs> they were just like, tell you, but you were just like, you were a beast. And I just looked for every job on monster.com. Remember when monster.com was like a thing that people looked for jobs and I, anything that said visual merchandiser in it, I applied for And I'm not kidding you. Like anything said visual merchandiser. I was a buyer for a while. So I tried that Avenue and I'm like, I'm going to apply for anything. There was this job with Nike. And I will tell you, as I had an age, I was like about 28, almost 30, 29, 29, 30, somewhere around that. And I remember, no, that's not right. I'm sorry. I was about like 25, 26. And I remember they looked at my salary after interviewing me and they're like, you, you get paid too much at Express. Like you're going to have to take a pay cut. We have this other job in the Nike town store that existed. It used to exist in uptown Manhattan. And I said, listen, I'm about, I want to make a career change. 
Like everything about this job is perfect. And this job was someone that would go into Nike owned shop or Nike spaces in a Dick sporting goods in like a sport check. If you're in Canada, like, you know, I had a territory and they had Nike shop shops. I would take the vision, the visual merchandising guy. I would see what they have in the store. I would reset it. I'd fold, I'd hang. I'd talk to the store employees about Nike, get them really excited, ask them what's selling, ask them what consumers want, fill in the reports. That was the job. And I remember that saying, I want a career change. And I took a pay cut for this job. It was at that time, it was significant. Like, I mean, it was super, it was probably a third of my salary. I got cut and I worked my way up. I honestly, like from, I, I had the ability in that role to actually launch the first LeBron shoe at a sneaker villa store in Philadelphia. So we got to do a store takeover and, you know, got to see, you know, young LBJ uh, as he came right from like Akron, Ohio to the NBA launch his products. And it was just like, it kept me there. And I, I got to see these opportunities that I got to do. And it was a very entrepreneurial job. And my boss at the time had told me this and I've taken this statement ever since is, create the job you want to have. And so that's when I've been able to do and create these little moments in time, like where I find these opportunities that didn't exist, figure out a process, figure out a plan, and then take that to the next level. And that's usually, that's kind of how I've been successful in my career, but that's, um, I'm probably digressing a little bit, but anyway, when they interviewed me for the job, I said, I'm willing to take this pay cut. And I took the leap. I did it. And I just went full, full head, um, you know, into this role. We're not here for the high rollers, snooty wine critics or long-haul collectors, but we do think it's about time wine sellers turned into swoon-worthy works of art. Our experienced designers will bring your dream wine cellar to life, fitting any sized space and aesthetic requirements in your home. Our craftsmen carefully hand-build your cellar to give you a wine storage space that really feels like you. Visit themoderncellar.com for more information. Sacrifice doesn't matter in what uh, world generally leads to the greatest opportunities. And if you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't figured that out, that's the key to so many things. Sacrifice leads to opportunities that are so plentiful and unseen from the position you're in. You would have never thought, like you said, that taking a giant pay cut to go to a change of career would lead you to where um, you've had an, a fantastic series of different brands that you've been able to go in and touch and help with their marketing and learn from all these things. And, and so I like, to me, this sounds absolutely real. The amount of things in my life that I've had to sacrifice to get gain uh, it's what it's one of my super, it's one of my secret superpowers. So it's interesting you brought it out um, <laughs> yeah. because it's uh, that in combination. Uh, and most people are going to laugh with extreme empathy. Um, those two things in common uh, or in conjunction with each other uh, create a really, really broad, unique set of abilities. And we, well, we can chat about that when we get into it a little deeper, but I, I find that amazing. So you were, Visual merch with Nike to sort of start with. And then what was your progression? Like you were there for 14 years. You didn't stay there. You didn't stay in that position. No. And every job I probably had it. I probably, gosh, I had um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think I had seven or eight jobs 
uh, or roles, let's just say, since before I left the company. So I was able to do a lot. Um, so I went from being a visual merchandiser to actually being the boss of those people. Sure. So um, basically what I did, oh, sorry. Um, yes. So then I moved to Miami okay. to actually be a, we called it at that time, visual space manager. Basically it was a retail brand manager for a territory. I had the person, the role that I used to do, I had people that reported into me that did that job and I covered the entire Southeast territory, but it was more strategic. So instead of, um, you know, being told what to do, I was actually the person taking the North America plan, adapting it to a territory. Um, Nike had just done this. Um, they were going through like you know, uh, different kinds of account marketing uh, things. We had actually just started e-com, if you can believe it. E-com had just started at that time. Social media was on its way to becoming a thing for the world. And it was really figuring out the uh, entire strategic plan for the different categories of business that matter to those consumers in the South so or the Southeast. So I was able to work with amazing accounts like Hibbit Sports and you know Sneaker Villa and, uh, um, and uh, who else? Um, Academy, um, there's some small like shoe gallery, lots of different retailers down there. But the thing that really set that apart with that journey was coming up with these marketing strategies, very omni-channel for the first time. It wasn't just catalogs it was e-com so finding that opportunity social media as a way of you know getting in out there people this is before people were paying to for placement on social media sure. everything was organic yeah. and um i was able to do some amazing things there where i started a run club in um, miami and it actually became a run club um we were doing this a moment it was 8808 i remember it this is day it was called the human race Nike's job on that day, they want to get everybody running in the entire world. <laughs> everybody was going to run on 8808. So we became this, um, we were going to do races in key cities all over the world. Sure. One of them was supposed to be Miami. And then we didn't, we moved it to Austin, Texas. And then we had started a run club a couple months before that to actually start this human race. And we had had started with two run, no, three runners, myself, one of my coworkers, and one of my key friends, um, Kevin Dennis and I the only three people at this run club. And we then moved it um, into more of a, of a bigger run. And actually it was 200 people by the time we got this run. And we actually ended up putting on a race in Miami for the human race. And it was like 5,000 people showed up. It was crazy. But then the other thing we did was um, we actually used social media to market this, to get more people to come to this race before social media was even a way of like communicating events and getting after things. So it was just really finding opportunities in moments um, and getting after uh, different, whether it was running, I had the ability to work on like Sony Ericsson uh, tennis events and doing experiential retail where we use the Wii to simulate tennis at the time <laughs> yeah. and doing a consumer event. Uh, it was really, and but I've also had the luxury of having really great bosses that have let me do things and, and guiding me, but letting me fail as well. Because not all these were perfect events, not all these were perfect marketing um, tools or whether it was co-op marketing or, did, or any sort of like in-store marketing. But I really had people that trusted me to do things. And if I failed, I was completely honest with it, but we just didn't do it again. But you learn from mistakes too, you, which is a great learning. You do. Um, I, I always find it, well, it, mistakes are the only way you do learn. If you don't make mistakes, you're doomed. If you like, it's the, the loss that teaches you the, the win. That's just what the reality is. Um, I, I had a, my guest, last guest, I think it was my last guest, Johnny Mansfield, the last one I just spoke to. She is, uh, she was a, held a role similar to what you hold 
at Oakley. She was there before you. Uh, she's now uh, trans gone through a diff- few different companies. She had this uh, really great company called Fisher Pike, a high-end appliance company. And she's a, a longtime friend of mine. I've worked with her for uh, 12, 13 years. She's great. Her husband's a friend of mine. I work with him at a different company. Um, you know, I've got a long, long history with Oakley, uh, a long history in the bicycle world, a very long history in the surf world. Uh, I asked Johnny a question. I want to ask you the same question. And um, I'm married to a hyper woman, a superpower <laughs> lady. She is a uh, in the Commonwealth, in the English Commonwealth. Lawyers can get assigned to be, uh, up until very recently, a Queen's Council lawyer, which is you know only about two or three percent of the lawyers in all of the different Commonwealth countries ever get this designation. And you have to be basically, and pardon my language, a fucking shark. Like you, you're like, you're the best of the best and you're scary as hell. And that's who I married. And she's amazing. Um, and I've seen her travel through some awkward stuff. The world of law and the world of these things ends up being a boys club. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know very clearly the past historic, um, environments that existed in the athletic world, specifically in marketing, were hyper bro level, work your way up stuff. And he who threw the strongest and highest and most powerful high five in every meeting that led everyone to the dinners and drinks afterwards, regardless of performance, that person sort of moved their way up. Um, and and it's very obvious. And to be perfectly honest, I did the same thing. Um, I throw a high five like no one's business. I have no four <laughs> high five. Amazing. Uh, I have no formal training. I have a fairly solid intuition and I learn fairly quickly and I've got some skills that let me yes. understand consumer yes. really well, which yes. leads me to where I am. But that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that yep. that's how I got here. I got a lot of opportunities from high-fiving yeah. shit out of the crowd yeah. and moving on. Yep. And uh, that sometimes is, and I, I saw it, there was a really clear line between a female yeah. high-five and a guy high-five. Yeah. Were you, back when you were doing this um, and working your way through, did you struggle through that? Did you find a way to play your way through that? I know it still exists in business today. It's still a thing, although it is definitely slowly minimizing. Um, If a young Mm 20-year-old you shows up on your doorstep and says, Megan, help me. I want to get from A to Z and there's so many doors and so many mountains and so many things to go around. I believe, uh, unfairly, there are more for women than there are for men still. I agree. Specifically in sports. I agree. Product marketing. I agree. It's a boys club. I agree. Just straight. It's a boys club. So what advice would you give to young you? That's not you. Real human. Let's let's humanize this person. She comes out out of school. She lands somehow into your department. And you see this high five struggle going on and inequity. What's the, I know there's resiliency. Absolutely. Gets you through lots, but 
what did you face with that? Is there anything that stands out? Like, I don't want you to like nail some dude to the cross that isn't ready to get burned on the internet, but like without naming names and naming companies, how did you get around that? Cause I know you faced it. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, everyone knows there's like news out there about Nike and there's like some severe issues that like some women have had in the company, you know, like it's, it's common. You can Google the crap out of it. There's a ton of people. I will, I will say I wasn't blind to it. Like I, I noticed that those things happen, like, but those, those women didn't have a voice, which is awful, right? Like they couldn't say anything. I personally had never felt that at that company. Like, I will be honest, all the men that I had contact with were gentlemen. They were, they were lovely. Like they were, they were, they were empowering men. Um, and then if they, if I did, there was a where we were in like because i've always been customer facing so i've always been with accounts so there was a couple events that we'd be at and there would definitely be an uncomfortable moment with a with a, a man either you know with the company or a customer or something like that but i i had one moment in in particular that that happened and i actually um I had a really, uh, really strong leader of sales. And I kind of said, like, I'm, I'm feeling a little like off on this. And he's like, all right, come with me, you know? And so there's, there were like the men that were amazing, you know? And then there, I did have a couple instances like that, but I will say for the most part, it wasn't a perpetual thing for me. Like I, I, I will say I was very fortunate or I was very innocent and I didn't notice. I, it could be one of the, one of both, honestly, Jamie, but I, um, but I would say my advice to a younger me is, you know, it, it, you, women can speak the game. I mean, I think the other last week or last couple of weeks of work, I was counting how many times I was on the call and it was all guys and just me. And I think it was basically 95% of the calls. I mean, you and I were on a call earlier today. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm normally, you know, and I, and I don't want to say anything about the leadership in my team now, but like when it comes to, you know, my level and above, I am the only female, you know, in my team right now, like I, from director level up, I am the only female and there's a lot of men. So I think my advice to the, to the girl or a female that's coming through this, or if, you know, if you're changing into a female and you're not a female, you know, right now, or whatever your gender is. I think my advice is um, just be strong. Don't be a pushover. And I feel like to me that will give you, um, you know, and I think being, being kind and being supportive also helps, but I think that's a very inherent female quality, I guess, you know, anything like maternal, you know, just being like very like maternal with things. And I don't want to genderize things because there's a lot of, I have a lovely father and I have a lovely stepfather who are very, very caring humans. But I think that, um, I think just, you know, knowing your strength, I think being strong in your opinions, but I also think there's a way in which you can, um, you know, you can use being female to your advantage a little bit, you know, and I'm not saying do anything that's, you know, not a, um, it's not, you know, some work. You're not trading sex. No, yeah, you're not trading sex. No, I'm not work. trading sex. But, I'm not flirting. I'm yeah. not holding hands with anybody. Yeah. I'm not doing anything that's bad. But like, I do think there's ways in which that like, you can just say like, Hey, well, what do you think about this? And you know, well, I think this, and you know, a guy has a guy's opinion, but I've also been, I worked for a beauty company and my boss was male and he's trying to tell me how women shop skincare and how they shop lipsticks and how they shop mascara. They need all these things. I'm like, no, they don't. 
you know? So the, it goes the other way too. I also think like, I felt bad for men in the beauty industry, but they're also not like this particular man didn't wear makeup. There's a lot of men that do wear makeup. So they, I actually value their opinion. So there's also the other side of it in different industries too, you know, that can happen. Yeah. And to your current employer, which is Luxottica slash Oakley slash Costa, and it's Luxottica to their credit. I know that Cindy King was amazing. Uh, Gwen, who was working at head office at Oakley, was amazing. Before them, uh, my favorite female that I've ever worked with, Jose, who was the GM of Canada, and then ended up running, I think, sales globally. She is so close and dear to my heart that it's unbelievable. Yeah. And she... The, this, these were all women supported by that organization. And trust me, you know, I, I deal with Luxottica on a, a thousand different levels because I have multiple companies that deal with them. And I deal with the Italians and I run into enough high level female Italians that are out sort of busting balls and making deals. Oh, yeah. They, they definitely are not, they're not a company that is shy of, of having uh, a proper female representation. No. That's zero doubt. So kudos to Luxottica because they actually walk the walk when it comes to having, they don't care if you're a man or a woman or, or anything in between. Um, they don't care. They just, they want you to, they really care about numbers and they really want you to get your numbers and do your job. It's a business, uh, but they are exceedingly, um, from what I have had experience with, which is a lot, uh, they are legitimately good as far as their policies with between men and women. It's very I, good. I totally um, agree. And that's like, that's what brought me into this company. It's like, it's very, you know, it's, it's strong company. It is very diverse. You know, it's very diverse in like race, ethnicity, anything like it's, it's amazing. It's a great company. I do love it. Yeah. It, they're very diverse with uh, everything, um, yes. which is very good. Um, so yep. after Nike, uh, you already sort of referenced that you yep. flipped it a little bit and went to a very yep. feminine company. Um, yep. which is in the beauty industry. So explain, um, it, it's funny because we were, to everyone who doesn't have access to anything that we talk about privately, you and I were in a meeting, uh, yep. I don't know, a month and a half ago, and you were looking for my agency to produce something and you pulled out, uh, I think it was a, uh, it was either a trophy or some sort of sculpture, <laughs> whatever it was. Yes. And I, I'm sitting in, th uh, yeah. there it is. Yeah. There it is. Okay. So that's a Nike yes. product and pull that apart for me. Pull it right apart to the part that I actually was like, hold on, go back. Oh yeah. Cause I think it, so, yeah, it was, um, Oh God. It's so it's Jed's. Part. Yes. So basically if anybody that doesn't know, these are the Nike snow, I used to work for Nike snowboarding, Nike skateboarding and Nike 6.0 in my career. We did nesting dolls for all of our athletes. And then is it this one? No, this is whole, this is whole, whole door. Yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, the Calgary Tower yes. when you get oh, to it. Oh, you know what? It's on the other one. Sorry. It's, there's another it's one. On the other the one. Yes, it's on the other one. Yeah. So we're sitting in a meeting, and I'm in an obscure city uh, very north of, of where you are, in right next to the Rocky Mountains called Calgary, which is a beautiful place. And you pulled out an athlete piece of promo of a kit of literally of a kid that I helped get into sponsorship and snowboarding. You pulled out Jed Anderson stuff. And I was like, I go, go back. That was, that's literally, we have a ridiculous 
yeah, we have a ridiculous tower in the middle of Calgary called the Calgary Tower. And he pulled it out and it was uh, shocking. There it is. There's the Jed Anderson yes! Calgary Tower uh, for Nike. And so no matter what, this is an exceedingly small world, uh, which I find amazing. Um, so you went from um, extra uber cool um, to ultra feminine product series. First, what was your role at, um, where did you end up? L'Oreal? L'Oreal. Yep. L'Oreal corporate. I, um, yeah. Okay. So what were you doing there? Yeah. So, um, I was the VP of customer retail experience there. Uh, I worked in the, um, the central retail department, um, which was basically a, an area where um, finance, real estate, training, and then retail um, consumer experience, where we would actually work with the different brands in the L'Oreal portfolio, specifically Kiehl's, Nick's, um, Salon um, Centric, as well as um, Atelier Cologne, um, which is a, a fragrance brand. We worked with them to actually, uh, you know, their real estate deals, training them on training tools, different systems that would go across because they were they were all brands that had physical retail, they had e-com, and then they had they had uh, membership and a CRM programs. So it was my job to work with them to share best practices, figure out what they needed, find agency partners that could do this similar thing, pull them in. So we were testing a lot of stuff with. Um, we used one agency that actually would um, measure how people shopped a store. So you could actually test um, heat map and you would get to like a gender, you can get to an age to see the traffic patterns of a store to see how a store actually um, is metric. Like how long do people dwell in a certain area? Did you put your certain marketing in there? Did people go to it when it changed? Like, and you can see the traffic patterns. We um, also launched a clienteling program with an agency partner. Um, I'm, but I left, I left Nike for beauty because I love beauty. I really do love, I'm a beauty junkie. I, I am very middle. I'm very sporty. I will go out and play and get dirty and get sweaty and be on my Peloton and be fine. But as you can see, I've got the red lipstick on. I love beauty products. Like it's like my, I'm obsessed with it. So I figured, why don't I, I, I mean, not to sound terrible. I worked for Nike for 16 years. Where can I go? that's better than Nike. I basically have an MBA in marketing from Nike. So like, I'm like, yes, where do. can I go? That's better than that. So L'Oreal, you know, arguably, you know, Estee Lauder L'Oreal, but arguably one of the best beauty companies in the world. Um, and my boss that hired me super intelligent, super engaging, super like creative, lots of ideas brought me in to actually bring that Nike mentality into a beauty company. So Omni-channel marketing, tying together e-com, stores, and CRM. I'll be honest, no matter what company I go to, they're still separate. Like, no one, like, Nike does its best to seamlessly talk to the consumer, and they do it the best because they also have the apps. But um, everything's very siloed because it's different functionality. So I was brought in to um, align that consumer journey, elevate stores to make sure stores had experiential retail, and then we can quantify it. And uh, it was it was an awesome journey. It was so much fun. I actually got to lead a global project where we mapped the consumer journey from um, front of house to back of house on how consumers shopped beauty, agnostic of brand. So I actually worked with um, it, we worked with the, the Asia Pacific territory with cart with uh, 
oh God, Superdrug. No, that's not right. I'm forgetting the name of the company. Um, Watson's. And then we did Superdrug in the UK, Carrefour in France, Walmart in Canada, actually, and CVS in the US. And we mapped how consumers shopped men's beauty products, which was an interesting one, makeup, skincare, and hair care, just to see if there was a different way in which people did things. Um, in different, and then aggregate that into theories on why and how people should do stuff at retail. Do they do them different? Yeah, weirdly enough, they do. So um, it's interesting because, um, for example, uh, Asia Pacific and the U.S. are very similar. We have um, social. We do a lot of coupons. We listen to a lot of influencers. We um, we use a lot of e-com sales. Like they do a lot of like omni-channel shopping. But what we found. So uh, let's define for people listening, Asia Pacific, I'm going to guess is uh, uh, Korea, Japan, China. Australia, yep. New Zealand. Yep, yep, yep. China, you guys are including China in there? Yeah, okay. Singapore. Yeah, we actually put China in there. Yep. Yeah. So Asia Pacific, um, we learned that they are different. Um, we learned that in, um, you know, in France, people are very like deals and they kind of shop like by need, it's not by want a lot of the times. So they bought their beauty products in car four when they were just buying their milk and their bread. Uh, Superdrug, that's their, they love the beauty products and Superdrug, but they were very experiential. They wanted to have like makeup lessons. And this is also the time when people are trying to go more digital and less human. So they had less sales reps in a lot of stores and we were learning that people like sales reps. They didn't want to check out. They wanted to talk to people. So it, Amazing. yeah, like they wanted to talk yeah. and this is before COVID like hit the world. Like, so, and we realized people wanted to shop. So yeah, it was, it was a fun, it was a fun journey to be a part of like L'Oreal, different company, different culture. It's very tough when you 17 years at a company and you have trust, people know you, you have a name and then you go to a new company with this big title and you have to like earn it. And that was a sacrifice I took going back to your theme from the beginning, you know? Yeah, that's a it's a risk, not a sacrifice in that position. I'd challenge you on that because you've already you've already earned your position at the table um, and that's why you got that job. But it definitely is a risk because you're leaving the nest of where you were. You could walk in, make decisions, not be questioned on your decisions because of past successes. And um, I find marketing to be a really interesting thing and to just back everything up just when we're talking about consumer journey for everyone talking there's a whole bunch of different levels of consumer marketing and understanding the consumer and it could be everything from filming a space playing it forward at high uh, you know high speed and finding out the traffic patterns and the decision making that happens over large volumes of people over a large time lapse period of time. And you can literally walk into department stores and see wear marks in the floor in the beauty department that show the consumer's journey. This is something that I notice when I walk into a large Hudson's Bay or something like that. You can literally look at the floor. Then brands that caught onto this very quickly uh, that had exceedingly masterful control over their environment would be an example of something like Adidas, where Adidas, or not Adidas, sorry, my mind's um, on a different topic here, Ikea, yeah, where they literally move the consumer around a maze for specific things. And they put people who answer questions in very critical spots where those, 
where those people will get bottlenecked and need that. And so they super strategically go through this. And as much as the consumer experience isn't marketing, it is marketing because everything boils down to two real things. If you sell it and if you could have evoked the sale and evoking the sale is the, the precondition of collecting that money and the brand growing. So um, someone like Ikea has done it amazing. Uh, if you have the opportunity and you can go through something like the Santa Monica Nike store, yes. um, which is a beautiful environment and it is got a very subtle flow that every consumer, you could sit back. I, we were in there one day and my wife was trying on an inordinate amount of <laughs> shit. And so I'd already my picked my things out in about you. five minutes. <laughs> yeah, your stock does says thank you. So I, I was just sitting back watching because I, I, I'm like, a, I love studying how people move through things. Um, and I sat back and everybody walked the same path. And I was like, okay. And not to the point where they hadn't worn it into the floor yet, because there's just an, enough optional exits on these things to be able to do it. But um, that consumer flow is is a really, really interesting thing. So when we're talking visual merch, which is Megan here's expertise um, for you to be able to cross over from uh, one to work with it at retail is indispensable because you are immersed in it eight hours a day, if not more than that for years. And that's huge. I learned so much from that. Then to deal with it from a branded side in an athletic world and watch consumers. Now everyone needs to understand that the athletic world is still heavily weighted towards men. Yep. The product selection, the consumer level, everything. The only companies that break that mold is Lululemon. There's a few exceptions where it's directly targeted at a female. Uh, but even there, there now, Lululemon is, yeah, they're trying to, they got the exact opposite problem of Nike, where it's guy, 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 girl, guy, 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 yep. girl. Uh, Lululemon's girl, girl, girl. And then there's a random guy that walks in and, uh, need a pair of sweatpants. And it's and probably because so their partner, they're, husband, or girlfriend bought them a pair and they're like, oh, I love them. I need another color. hundred <laughs> percent. And, and so there's, there's all these different interesting things that come down here and it ends up being a very complex matrix of logic because you're dealing with the psychology, the consumer, uh, the, uh, environment. So Megan, you can't sell umbrellas if it's not raining, you can't sell rain. You know, you can't sell golf clubs if it is raining, so like there's, there's like th this world is really fast and there's tons and tons of dynamic things that happen. Um, the beauty world would be, uh, and I'm going to say this and I might be wrong, slightly more stable because it's not quite as weather dependent. Um, you would have spikes in, in skincare that has SPF and certain things like that. But I would assume mascara is a fairly flat, you know, you might have a bump in mascara around holiday season because there's more getting fancy and dressing up and the non-business woman uh, that's getting done up every day would need it for parties and stuff. Um, but I would assume it's a flatter, more consistent business. It is, but there's trade-offs to it. So what we learned was um, when skincare was up, makeup is typically down because people are investing in better skin products. They want to show off their natural skin. They don't want makeup. 
We also find them in certain cultures, um, makeup is a bigger seller. Um, like in South America, it's all about makeup, you know, in the Asia Pacific, it's really skincare. They don't wear a ton of makeup. So it's, it's very different, but it is more stable and it isn't, it was the first time, um, at Nike, as you know, like people like they covet sneakers. They love them. They will wait online forever for a drop. They will sell them on StockX. They will, you know, they will resell them. There are people out there that are just like, they, they have a job just reselling Nike product, right? But when it's makeup, no one's out there waiting online for the newest mascara drop. You know, if yeah, it's very, very rarely lineups outside of Mac. No, there's no <laughs> like cosmetics. So. Exactly. There's no line out there. So it was a they're very interesting um, thing to create demand. So what we learned is, um, in makeup and, um, skincare and, and beauty products, it's really about like, there's the want to have or the need to have. So you have to figure out how to have it placed in the right location. Um, want to have is experiential need to have is probably an end cap because it's a sale. So it, that's, it's really about product placement in the consumer journey. And then you get to your point, uh, JB, where the graphic goes, where the marketing is like, there's, there's, there's a philosophy around it. It's just a little different. Yeah. From brand development to simple market executions, 54 blue helps brands of all sizes grow with sustainability in mind. Their full stack range of services include print, fabrication, design, web, interactive, content marketing, brand consulting, creative strategy, and more. Join some of the world's largest brands and lean on 54Blue for your next go-to-market. Visit 54Blue.com for more information. Yeah, the consumer demographics, just the world, it's interesting because I'm doing a marketing podcast and one of my next guests was uh, a CMO at a company that was through their absolute heyday and uh, fundamentally adjusted brand so we could talk about brand which is where my heart starts i'm a brand marketing person yes um i i I believe that brand is the core of every marketing decision and everything else relies on brand to be stable agreed and then there's lots of other like it's hard to explain but um Marketing is such a large and confusing and fragmented thing, and it's all broken into these different functional groups, uh, and it gets really tricky and and gets really murky really quickly for a lot of people that don't understand everything. Um, I believe in brand, and I foundationally start there, but at heart, I am a trade marketer, and trade marketing is the division of marketing that takes all the work that's done upstream condenses it into sales tools and uh, instigation elements to drive the consumer to sale. So these become everything that the consumer basically sees in the end. And it's super important. If you blow it, you blow it. And everything done upstream is a waste of time. And that's where you've lived your entire life and you've done it in fashion, you've done it in athletic, you're now doing it in optical. And if anyone doesn't understand it, optical uh, is also a controlled medical product and it has its own things. And it's, you know, if you're trying to sell uh, optical lenses and, you know, things that, you know, this is a prescribed product, even though it's not, you're not, (laughs) you're not selling opiates. No. Uh, (laughs) However, uh, you know, 
it's still a very serious thing with medical records and all these different things. And it's a, it's a different skill set. Um, so you've leaped across all these different things. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was before we get into sort of more weedy specific, and I got some future leading questions that I want to ask you a little bit, but the, there's, there's two things that marry up in your world a lot. And I always find brands and there's been a couple, I can explain them if you want me to, but I've seen amazing ideas, amazing marketing concepts. And I look at them and I go, won't work. And the brands usually push back a little bit and they go, why? I go, how are you going to scale that? And they look at me, I go, I could do it once. How are you going to do that? You know, like, you know, without giving away specific numbers, a company like Luxottica would have tens and tens and tens of thousands of retail doors. Nike would have hundreds of thousands of retail doors to be able to execute. And then even if small percentages of these do this, that's thousands and thousands of trying to execute something. So I more increasingly am guiding people that come to me for consulting to focus everything against the lens of sustainability and scalability. I always look at it as uh, sustainability being the economic component. Can we scale this and make it worthwhile? Like if you're putting a display for a product in a retail store and the display is $2,000 to execute within this store with all in, and you're only going to move $2,000 worth of product, that is a, a completely unsustainable package. And like it has to be exponentially more valuable in product sales than it is in, in, in the point of purchase and display materials that are going to go to drive this. And then the scalability is, can you actually then do this over thousands of doors? And I would assume, um, and I've dealt with you a little bit. Um, generally it's my, my partner, Mark, that deals with, with your account now, but, um, do you focus, and I know the answer is yes, but where's your focus on the scalability and sustainability? And like, unfortunately, those two things inevitably water down concepts. They just do. They do. But, they 100% do. But, but it's something in, like I tell people all the time, something in market that is okay is a thousand times better than failed executions that are terrible. Um, have you learned like, and, and for all those people out there, when they look at an amazing piece, you know, in L'Oreal, you guys launch a new amazing mascara and it's really expensive, but it's in a cardboard display. Uh, but it's a nice cardboard display. There's a really, really, really clear economic reason why it's in cardboard, not in a beautiful acrylic display because the acrylic one is 20 times the price. It's harder to ship all of these things logistically it's just a nightmare so in, in your world how important as a being a trade marketer an experienced marketer at retail how important are those two things in your world i think they're both important but they serve different means so for me i think um i think it depends on your kpi 
because I do like in key performance indicator, if you don't know what a KPI is as a listener. So I would say that um, it depends on your KPI. If you, your goal is to create this thing, that's a great display that showcases your beautiful new launch of um, let's just say it's, we launched a year ago or, you know, the Cato beautiful new piece of eyewear and you want to display it in a great way. You're going to spend $2,000 on this display. That display should be in a high traffic area where people are going to be taking pictures of that. They will going to be posting on it. They're going to be trialing it. So you, your, your, the new marketing metrics of it's not about sales. Sometimes it could just be about social media impressions and that's how your payment is um, because that'll influence the entire marketplace. So I think it depends on what that KPI is. Um, I also think that when it comes to um, scalability, you know, you know, not everyone can afford a $300 pair of eyewear, you know, that looks really great on their face. So it depends on like the new, the different products that tear down. So I do think we do need to be sustainable because that $2,000 fixture in that location will hold that Cato now, but it stays there. And then you keep using that fixture for every new launch that happens. So it does amortize over that side of things. And I do think to your point, like, I mean, we have thousands, like tens of thousands of accounts on the Oakley side. We have tens of thousands of accounts on the Costa side. Like it does get to this point that you need to figure out. Um, I sometimes like to think like, what's the most impactful, scalable thing you can kind of do? And then what would it mean up? Because if you're going to get more bang for those tens of thousands of accounts that have that one piece, then you can figure out how to go up the pyramid. I will say at the end, when I was in Nike, I went the opposite. I did, you know, just because when I was dealing with Foot Locker at the time or Champ, so you would have, you know, your big expression, but then you'd figure out your tiers of it. But Nike's you know, it's got a different sell through than like the eyewear that someone's going in to purchase because let's face it, how many times a year do you buy shoes? Correct. You know, and like how many times a year do you buy sunglasses or new eyeglasses for that reason? So you, you want to make sure that it's something that can sustain longer. Um, so I almost think that I, oh, sorry, I dropped you a little. Um, the, the opposite approach for this um, with scalability is uh, a better option. Um, but I also think you tier your accounts. Not everybody's treated the same, you know, and I also say not every location's treated the same. We might do more in, um, let's just say in LA than we would possibly do in, you know, Minnesota. So it's a little different on how you do the approaches because of that reason. That's a great answer. And for, for people that don't understand sort of basic, basic, basic tiering of how retailers work, I'll, I'll give a really brief example. Uh, there's a ski store in the center of Calgary. It's a, uh, it's a great store. This location, um, is a core ski store. Uh, they will only do, let's say three or $4,000 worth of any brand's product, let's say in the goggle world. And then, um, but it's the core store. It's the store that every consumer thinks is the hottest shit. They know their stuff. So, you will put an inordinate, as a brand, you will put an inordinate value against that store. And they usually tier them like this. Uh, marketing value is tiered generally like ABC or one, two, three. Let's call marketing value ABC. A being a, a place that you would spend just about anything to be in. Uh, C being a store where you're like, mm, we can market there, but we're not concerned. And then what they do is they then wedge uh, economics against that. And so a large giant store like a Dick's Sporting Goods would be 
uh, a one, a high, high volume. But that, that ski store I was just talking about is low volume. They would be a three. So for those out there that haven't ever had to deal with this, where you pour your most money in, in, in percentage wise is in that small little store. Yep. You pour all your money into that core little ski store to the point where you will actually be underwater. You will be spending more money almost economically in marketing in that space than you ever would be able to recover from sales. And it's still a great deal. And the reason is, is the cool kid and the uh, opinion leaders drive and buy in that store. The next level, the you go from your alphas to your betas and all the way down, then you get, you know, you get into these other people and the less engaged, less core person recognizes the core product in the core store being purchased by that, but will only shop at a Dick Sporting Goods or a Sport Check or something like that. And so the money that you spend in that core store is actually supporting the sales that are going to be happening at these big box stores. And it's, it's, a, it's a very basic industry uh, trick. In the world of makeup, uh, it would be giving um, makeup artists and designers your product for free and placing it onto, you know, so that it gets used on specific people in specific times to then support the large mass sales. There's no making money from those people. It's nothing but a net loss, but in the end, it's a very good trade-off. So just so people kind of understand that gets traded around a lot and it sort of is a, is a legitimate sales technique. Um, so you found yourself, uh, and if anyone doesn't know, you're managing both Oakley and there's a secondary company which you referenced really quickly, which is Coast Eyewear, which has got a bit more of a, it's owned by Luxottica. It's got a bit more of a fishing vibe. It started in Florida, I believe, and it sort of is coming out of there. Um, super cool company, great product. And product is, yeah, has been undeniable all the way along. Now it has the power of Luxottica to drive it forward. Um, you have some very interesting challenges. You are working in tons of different uh, channels of trade, surf, snowboard, bicycle, fashion, sunglass, optical, fishing, golf, like it, it I can go motor motocross on and on and on and and on. don't forget we sell apparel as well and footwear and accessories we're going to ignore <laughs> that let's, let's, let's not leave, let's not bring in any more complexity other than your core product okay uh, and trust me i'm very aware of what you guys have and i, know. I don't want yes. i don't even want to confuse myself with those topics because <laughs> it, it becomes a matrix of retailers that's very difficult so when you are operating as a marketing, like you have two roles and not everyone in marketing has this, you have to activate and do your job both from a strategic level and from a tactical level. Not every marketing company or personnel needs to do that. Let's say if you're in the campaign department, you're working sort of master level down, you're basically working strategic and that's all you need to worry about. You don't have to worry about how this is going to get tactically rolled out. They just look at it and go, someone else down the path is going to do that. And then there are some very specific people that work only tactically and they don't have to necessarily be as strategic. In the role you're in and what you're guiding, because you're 
dealing with brick and mortar very specifically, you have to be, you have to have a strategic plan, but then you have to be nimble enough uh, and fast enough to turn that into a tactical plan and then uh, variance against your tactical stuff when things in the market start falling apart. Um, what is the, like, you wouldn't have learned strategic at retail necessarily. Retail is very tactical in a lot of instances. Um, when did you start really getting a comprehension of there's two ways of thoughts against how we need to move and there's like these two different types of things, like your running event that you were referencing earlier, that is a tactical event. It's a strategic initiative, but it specifically is very tactical um, because you're going to be moving people into and instigating them to do something. This is an exceedingly tactical thing. Um, do you weigh your skills evenly in both of those? Like, or do you believe yourself to be a fantastic strategical sort of, marketing person? Do you think you're better tactically, but you're okay at strategics and, and you understand it? Like, how would you, how would you weigh that? Uh, it's a great, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think I'm, it's probably such a politically correct thing to say, but like, I think I've like done a lot of the tactics that it's, it's, it, you know, that I, I can do them. So I think that's given me the ability to be strategic I think my role right now, I even told my team the other day, I wish I could be more consumer facing and customer facing that they are, but my job has to be super strategic. Um, and then, then my, I have to trust my team to like execute and they do, they're amazing. They're, they're high performers. They're all very great in their own right, all very different. But I'd say I'm probably more, um, Honestly, I'm probably 75% strategic, probably 25% tactical, but I don't think I'd ever be able to do the strategy side if I didn't know what was going into it. Yeah, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. Yeah, because I think if I didn't, and I, I personally learn by doing, I really do. Like I learn by doing, I learn by talking, I learn by that. Like I don't, you know, there's some people that are really great strategists, but they just read like they read a lot of information, you know, they'll go online and look at competitors, they'll understand and then they think they know everything. But I'm like, I would rather go talk to retailers and figure out what customers are looking for. Like, I would rather talk to sales associates and say, um, what are they looking for? So for example, we were in an Oakley store in Texas and we we're talking to the store manager. And personally, I think as growing up playing sports my entire life, I don't really look if it's male or female product. I'll just buy it. Like, especially in eyewear. If it looks good in your face, it looks good in your face, right? So the store manager was amazing. She's just like, yeah, everyone keeps asking where the women's section is. And I said, oh, interesting. I have people come in looking for the women's section. She, she said, yeah. I said, oh, I've always been under the assumption that people just like come in, they try. She's like, no, there's more, more than not women come in want to know where the women's section is. So I would have never learned that if I didn't talk to somebody, which I think is a tactic. But it also helps me be strategic in like a how we're going to do things because I always tell my team like we have three pillars. It's um, we drive people to retail um, and that's through a lot of the marketing that we do either online, email, social, and we leverage the brand in doing that. We serve them in that experience, whether they're shopping online at Amazon, they're shopping online on DickSportingGoods.com or they're in a store. And in a store is also talking to that sales associate that's at the, at the, at the eyewear section that talks about the brand. So there's training, there's all the, the POP that we put into the case lines. We, we put our fixtures in certain locations in the store to be in the consumer's path, not just at the cash wrap. Um, 
you know, because historically retailers like to put eyewear in an encased area, which is usually where the cash wrap is. The problem with that is it's the last place someone goes when they're done purchasing. They've already figured it out in their brain. Yeah, like they're not going to put another $200 in their bag. Like it's not cheap. And then I say we also create relationships. Like, so for me, we create relationships in events that we do. The sales associates, we train the repeatable model, to your point, repeatable model that we do. I don't want to launch and leave. We should be doing a repeat because that's how you build relationships. Does your brand need some help in the trade marketing department? Manage your sales tools with regulators' easy-to-use features. Whether it's fixtures or displays, POP, custom art or promo products, you can submit single or bulk orders for all your locations within minutes, using a simple, streamlined process. Deliver content, manage your budget and view the market, all from the palm of your hand. Move up to 10 times faster than your competitors and capture all the opportunities that put your brand on top. Visit brandregulator.com for more information. For anyone listening that doesn't understand the world of sort of the marketing world that Megan's sitting in, um, it's a really tricky world. You need to understand uh, consumer marketing, product marketing. You have to be able to hold events very, very well. And these events might be just for your retailers or they might be consumer facing uh, you need to be able to build and run trade shows. You need to be able to make strategic decisions on local advertising. Uh, you need to be able to make tactical decisions on promotions. And then through all of this, you need to line this up against brand. It is insanely complex. And to be honest, I believe the world of trade marketing, trade marketing is the wrong word nowadays because it's too complex. It needs to be endpoint marketing. And I'm going to really drive people towards that. Um, it's why our title got changed to account marketing because it's really, it's personalized. It's not a one size fits all. It, it, it is. And it overlaps everywhere, which kind of leads me to a question that I've, I haven't asked anybody yet. You'd be the first person I've had the opportunity to ask this question. So, so flattered. The world of marketing is splintered. I'm going to make this very simple into two distinct we have two markets that are really powerful right now, and there's more, but let, let's just boil this down. There's brick and mortar and there's digital. And you have worked at three, if not more, potentially four brands that are rooted and born and bred in brick and mortar. It was the only marketplace that existed up until 1998, 2000. The digital marketplace was not around. You are at Nike, at L'Oreal, at Oakley. These are incumbents in their areas. These are they're undeniable yes. industry leaders in brick and mortar. You are constantly being attacked on the digital front and having to uh, create a better consumer experience against brands that you don't even get to see at retail. So in you know the eyewear world, there's all sorts of eyewear brands that are just direct to consumer. You can't actually even find them at retail. They're just digital and you purchase them and you might or order in four and send back three, but these companies are killing it and doing quite a good job. How, like looking into the future, and to be honest, I, I just did an article uh, I don't know how long ago it was, um, 
I did a quote in something about um, how the digital marketplace and like those brands inevitably flatten out their sales flatten and they go, wow, we're, we're flat in, in our marketplace. And they go, look over there. There's all all these, all these things. It's called retail brick and mortar. And they're like, (laughs) (laughs) they they get these, they get all greedy and they're like, I want to (laughs) go there. And you are an expert there. You understand the logistics and all the nightmares. It was an article I did for Forbes, a, a quote I did for Forbes, where they're talking about the logistical issues of these brands, because what happens is they, they go from just direct, directly talking to the consumer with exceedingly high margins. Uh, they have a tiny marketing team because they're only digitally marketing. It's very easy to launch these promotions, fairly easy to keep them organized. And now they've got potentially thousands upon thousands, if they're lucky and they get good distri- distribution into brick and mortar, they got thousands of points of contact and they've got a one or two person team that doesn't understand how print work, doesn't understand that. What no. one of the f- things I, I I laugh at when I, I talk to companies, and it's exactly related to this. It's they come to me and they go, "We're going to go into the brick and mortar. What do we need to know?" And I said, "Well, your product is this size, and it ships to the retailer at that size, and it's really easy to to move your product. How do you ship their product?" And they go, "It's it's FedEx." And I go, "Cool, you FedEx your product there." which some do or pure later or whatever they do to, to distribute their product. Um, and then I look at them, I go, well, how the display you want me to build is eight feet tall by eight feet wide. Do you have a, log- like, do, do you know, do you have a logistics company that's going to do that for you? They're like, well, I don't know. I go, how many of these do you want? Who want 400? I go, where are you going to store these? How, like, do you have a giant warehouse? And they're like, no. And I go, well, you're going to need a third-party warehouse. And they go, a third-party what? And I'm like, okay. Dark. I go, you can't, you can't use your current distribution tactics. You have to change your logistics. You have to understand that when I ship this display in the market, that you're going to need someone to set it up. Uh, well, we have to ship it. It has to guess what? If you're moving this into a Dick Sporting Goods, it's probably being slid through the store off hours, which means that you're now paying off hour rates. Oh, by the way, is it in uh, New York or Manhattan? Because then we're paying union. Um, Is this, uh, then it needs to be set up, then it needs to be merchandised, then it needs to be maintained, then you need to train the staff. Oh, and you just cut your margins in half because the store needs to make money. And, and they look at me and they're like, you can see, you can see a little tear <laughs> trickling yeah. down their cheek and they're like, oh, their dream is gone. Damn. And it's still, it's funny because the dream's there, but I don't believe like Nike is amazing at moving product logistically. Now, actually, I have a couple of funny stories about Nike, which I brought up in the past loosely. Um, however, they're a gold standard. Like they, they know how to do it. They, they can move products. Everyone, uh, they have a, a very thick trade marketing team, I would assume, that knows how to move from A to B, unusual things, knows how to create and build strange things outside of building footwear. You need to know how to build a display or a shop and shop or Agreed. all these types of things. Um, but back to y- you, like Oakley right now, Nike back then, L'Oreal, I would assume cosmetics is riddled with digital only marketplace cost products that are eroding 
your sales. Where is your, like your battlefront isn't digital at Oakley. You've been charged. Your battlefront is in field really in the grand scheme of things. Your, your battlefront is brick and mortar. It's wholesale in general. Yeah. It's wholesale. And, and, And for everyone out there, uh, she paused because wholesale has their own digital side. So Dick's Sporting Goods digital will fall under your privy, uh, not under the digital team. Uh, you know, mom and pops eyewear store in the corner, their digital needs and their digital store follows again under your department. However, it's not as easy as just the .com. It's just another giant no. point of... Correct. Conflict because no one's website's the same. If someone wants a promotional banner, uh, or you got, or even more importantly, Oakley wants to drive a promotion, you'll have ten thousand different resizes because everyone's web banners are all different. It's very tricky. Absolutely. Um, how do you, in your head, knowing that you're the incumbent, you own a marketplace, or you know, Oakley owns a marketplace. Sport eyewear, it's undeniable. Footwear, Nike, undeniable. You, you own these marketplaces. How do you, do you ignore the digital companies? Do you see them and defend against subtly in brick and mortar uh, by messaging? Like how, I've never necessarily been directly in charge of that. I've, I've had to be involved with it, but how strategically do you guys, when you see an attack coming from a company that is, vapor but eroding your sales how do you deal with that it's interesting it's um it's actually a i will say a philosophical thing that i have i have a it's a philosophical issue i have with luxotica a little bit like we're so worried sometimes we think about like the competitor and what they're doing but we have such amazing strong brands that we should just keep oakleyifying and costaifying mm. and like plussing up and leaning into our strengths so, um, and I think that's what we do really well is, um, is I think, well, what I've been trying to do, it's, it's not what the other people are going to do because they're doing what they need to do and mm-hmm. not, to be, not to be terrible. Some of the, some of the competitors are just taking our playbook from years ago and just doing that, which is great. It's awesome. And I'm not, I'm, and I don't want to say anything negative against our competitors because there's some great competitors out there with some great products. I mean, I think about like Warby Parker. I mean, their service is unparalleled. I mean, they do an amazing job. It's amazing. I think Maui, Maui Gym has great products. I think when I think about 100% goggles, you know, in snow and MX, like there's just, there's like really good competitors out there with great products. But I think the point is, is, it's, it's, it's really just keep thinking about what, what we do best as brands and what can we bring to the table and what are our strengths and what do we keep moving forward with? And instead of focusing on the weaknesses, I think I've spent years thinking about my life and my career and self-evaluation and everything. And I think like, what are my weaknesses? I have to fix my weaknesses. And I think brands should be the same way. Um, or sorry, I, I think about thinking about my weaknesses, but I'm like, why don't you lean into your strengths? You're already good at those things. You should just amplify and make those better because it's going to take you more time to like fix your weaknesses than it will just to keep amplifying your strengths lean into them i think brands should do the same thing and i think that's the mentality i want to take with my team and with the brands that we do is what does oakley do so well you know we have prism technology on our side i mean we have like amazing athletes we have amazing product we have great designers um we make every almost everything in foothill ranch i mean like it, it's amazing. Costa, same thing. Amazing designers, amazing products. The 5 d lens technology, glass or poly, awesome. 
our frames, I will, our women's sunglasses are my favorites. Mm-hmm. We have amazing women's sunglasses. So I think what we do for the community we do is we lean into those strengths and what we have. Like, yeah, there's going to be weaknesses and part of our weaknesses. I don't want to forget about them. We should keep our eyes on the prize. But I think we should be continuing to figure out how do we elevate. And I think personally, Oakley and Costa has great relationships with vendors, with retailers with consumers out there. I think it's just leaning into those and just making sure that we're amplifying those strengths. If you didn't recognize what you just did, Megan, you just definitively called yourself out as a brand marketing steward. <laughs> cause, <laughs> cause that's the Thank answer. Why? I love that. Yeah. The, the, the flip side of that is chasing the economics from a marketing perspective, um, which is actually almost impossible because it ends up forcing you into tactical uh, execution after tactical execution to try to attack your consumer or try to attack the competitors. And you never, one, you look weak because you're always on the attack of like this weird defensive thing. Uh, and you look, it, it just, it leads you to a bad spot. I never see Nike trying to respond to some sub trend thing that's happening in footwear. They just don't. They and they and they don't they don't, they don't you know and look, and I remember I had a leader get on stage and say that and say like as soon as you start to compare yourself you fall into mediocrity once you fall into mediocrity you're already losing I completely agree um, and that that's a that's an that's a great answer against that and so for anyone out there who's uh, one has a digital brand that is looking at brick and mortar open your eyes up talk to someone, call Megan, get, get an idea of, of how actually challenging this world can be. Um, two, uh, know that the grass is green in brick and mortar and it's a beautiful place to be and you get to talk to consumers and you get to, to deal with these people, which is a beautiful experience. They, be, they, they are no longer just a, a zero and a one digital thing that is vacuuming up your product in the marketplace there's real people with real stories and it's an unbelievable feeling to to get in touch with that Uh, and if you're a large brand out there and you're chasing money and you are a a heavily branded product your eye might not be on the prize correctly You, you definitely need um to have a solid strategic go to market that doesn't let you deviate into crazy tactics. Uh, and then beyond that, you need to layer all that with sustainability and scalability so that you can actually just get it done without killing your employees with, with work, which is, I've seen that a million times. It's tough. Um, so in the podcast, I do a thing called cool confessional. Um, and what it is, and I, I say this every time, uh, and I'll say it again is, uh, a naked man can't be pickpocketed. And so I'm doing the best I can uh, <laughs> at just over 50 years old to strip anything I think that I have shielded and kept hidden away um, that I find embarrassing or not masculine or uh, doesn't project uh, some sort of coolness. And so I'm stripping all those away 